Well, as I was driving in this morning, I thought, you know, maybe before I started the message, I'd share an email with you guys that I got last night. And uh, it's from a girl named Jill Glasgow. And I saw the email come in. It had Jill. And I've got a Jill in my community group, so I assumed it must be her. And then I started reading it and went, oh, wait a minute. This is somebody else. Um, As many of you guys know, I've had the privilege of leading some trips to the Holy Land over the course of the last couple of years. And we went last November together with another pastor here in town. So he gathers up a group, and we've gathered up some groups, and we go together, and it's really just this amazing experience. If you've never done it, I would encourage you to do it. We're going to do it again in March of 2013. But while we're there, one of the things that we do is we go to the Jordan River, and we baptize anybody who wants to be baptized. Now, before you feel the need to come talk to me about that, just for the record, we explained to the whole bus full of 46 people, I think it was last time, what baptism is and that we don't re-baptize people and all that kind of stuff, and we can dunk you or not dunk you if that's what you want. So yes, we dunk if that's what you want, okay? But here's the thing. You're, you're in Israel, and you're at the Jordan River, and even though it's freezing, this is a profoundly moving, awesome experience, and you don't want to miss it. So we're going to baptize you if you go on this trip. And what we say is we're reaffirming your baptism. So we explain baptism, and we say, think about what it signifies and about what Christ has done for you. So anyway, we baptized everybody. The water at this time of year, really, really cold. And the other pastor and I are the ones who stand in it the whole time. That's the great sacrifice. So we finished baptizing, I don't know how many of our group, most of our group last time, and uh, this young lady walks up, she's probably, I don't know, 25, and she came with her mother-in-law, and she said, you know, we're here from America, and we're not with a church group, so we don't have any pastors. Would you baptize us? I know you guys are done, and we're going, you know, teeth are chattering, I'm like all blue. Thinking, oh, good grief, you know, Lord, I was just rejoicing that we were finished. Um, but we talked to her, made sure that she was a believer and so forth, explained what we were doing and not doing. And we said, as we do with each of these people who come into the water with us, you know, is there something that we can pray for you about? And so she told us something to pray for her, and I don't, I don't remember what it was until last night. And so we prayed with her and put her under and did the same for her mother-in-law. So anyway, she sent me a note that same day and just said, hey, I'm Jill, the one you dunked today, and thank you. And, you know, she's a Seminole, so I I immediately I I realized how much I liked her. But I haven't heard from her since. So last night, I get this email from Jill, like 5.34 p.m. Hi, Tom, I'm including my original message, the first email, so that it will help you remember who I am, smiley face. She has personality. She said, last November, we met in a river in Israel, and I thought, well, that's how rumors get started right there. (laughs) We met in a river in Israel. She said, you probably don't remember me, and if you do, you probably don't really remember the prayer we prayed, but in that river, we asked God to bless me with a baby. She said, I have a few health issues, and I was told that that would hinder my ability to have a child and that surgery might be necessary before it would happen. So I really thought that it would take a while for me to get pregnant. She said, I just want to tell you that it was not hard for me. And my husband and I are expecting a little boy, we think, who will arrive exactly 366 days after we met you and we prayed. She said, I'm now 18 weeks along, and while things have been a little up and down with this pregnancy, 
Uh, I keep my faith that God has blessed this baby and everything will be okay. So thank you again for your graciousness in praying and reaffirming a stranger in a river in a faraway country. She says, and by chance, question mark, our son's name is going to be Thomas. It's a family name, but a nice coincidence. Cheers, Jill. And I just thought I'd read that to you as an encouragement. Um, You know, as we talked about last week, so often it seems like we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and, and God doesn't answer. And particularly as pastors, and maybe it strikes me uniquely, uh, I, you know, so many people come to me when they're in crisis, not necessarily when life is going well. So I feel like I get an imbalanced view of, of how much bad is happening or how much difficulty maybe is a different way of saying it is happening in the lives of God's people. And the Lord certainly does not always give the baby, does He? Doesn't. But sometimes He does. Now, God doesn't always answer the prayer that we pray, as we've talked about in this series. He answers the prayer that we should have prayed. And we come to Him thinking that we're asking for something good oftentimes, but from His greater wisdom, He realizes it's not good, and He gives us that which actually is. But I read this to you because I feel like sometimes we look at our medical condition or we look at our financial condition... You know, we look at people who are in our family and we, they're not believers in Christ and they're just hard as a rock and we just feel like even God can't do this. And, and I think that God sent me a little email just to remind me, you know, I'm really not tied up somewhere in a corner. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Pray and do not lose heart. So anyway, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, then turn in them to Luke chapter 18 which is on page 1,490 of your Reformation Study Bibles. I know I'm beginning to sound like a broken record. That's on purpose. We really want you to get a Reformation Study Bible. If you don't have one, you can get them in the Information Center in the back. Uh, You can pay as much as you can to get one. If you can't pay anything, take one. We want everybody on the same page, literally. So, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, then turn to them to Luke chapter 18 as we wrap up this series of messages that we're calling God's Word and Prayer. And as we've come to this end, what we've been doing in this series, if you missed it, is we've just been coming to God every week and week by week saying, okay, Lord, what does your Word have to say about this fundamental basic practice of following Jesus? It is foundational that we know of His prayer. And here, Lord's why we want to know. We want to know so that we can live it. We want to know so that we can take your instruction, take your disciplines, if you will, take your teaching, and by the power of your Spirit, for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom, not ours, put it into practice in our lives and in the process come to know the benefits of having a meaningful, vibrant, ongoing communication of prayer with the Lord. And as I outlined for you last week, we have learned a lot about prayer in this series. We've learned that we are to pray. We've learned about where to pray. We've learned about how to pray. We've learned about what to pray. We've learned about the kind of attitude that we're to bring with us to God when we pray. And then last week, we went to the same chapter of Luke chapter 18, where there are two parables on this topic of prayer. And we looked at the first of these two parables, and we saw that Jesus knows what life is like for us at times. That is to say, He knows that there are seasons of time in our lives where we are going to pray, and we're 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 going to just kind of feel like, man, am I wasting my time here? I mean, it seems like God is not listening, and it looks like the deliverance that, frankly, I I feel like I desperately need here is never really going to come. And Jesus steps into that equation and He says, guys, here's the kind of faith you need to have in prayer. You need to pray anyway. Pray, He says, and do not 
lose heart. Persevere in prayer. So that's where we left off last week, and we're going to pick it up right where we left off, which is at verse 9. And we're going to look at the second of those two parables, and Jesus is going to come to us in this second parable, and He's going to say, okay, when you come to God, you need to come humbly. That's sort of the bottom line. And what He means by that, and what I mean by that is this, if, if you think that you can just stroll into God's presence based upon the fact that you're a good person, and you do good things, and you say good things, and you, you know, been to good places, and I mean, generally speaking, you're good, your mother thinks you're good, and your, well, your mother thinks you're good, you know. And based upon the record of your own life, stand before God and expect to receive a hearing and answers to your prayers, you're going to be highly disappointed. We approach our God not in our own righteousness, and here's why, because we have none. We approach Him humbly, having seen Him for who He is, having seen ourselves for who we are, and confessing our sins to a Savior who alone can take them away. And we come clothed, not in a righteousness that we've fabricated fabricated and knit together by our own good deeds, so-called, but by a righteousness that He fabricated and knit together in His own perfect life, lived in our behalf. And coming that way we come confident. So Luke says this in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, he says, he, and he's talking here about Jesus, also told this parable on prayer. And as with that first parable that we looked at last week, this parable has a very, very specific audience. He says, Jesus also told this parable to some, and then here's the audience, are you ready, who trusted in themselves, here we go, that they were what? Righteous. And who, as a result of thinking that they were righteous, treated others who were apparently less righteous with contempt? That is to say, Jesus comes to a group of people in His day and us today, if the shoe fits, who tend to look at our lives and to think, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, you know? I mean, hey, I'm committed to God, and I mostly follow His law, and I do this, and I do that, and I do this, and I do that, and we look at everybody else, and we think it's C plus, B minus, at the very least. And we tend to think to ourselves, well, surely the Lord is really, really happy with me, and He's going to receive me based upon the record of my life into His presence, and I'm going to gain a hearing for whatever it is that I'm going to bring to Him. And surely, conversely, by the way, God is really, really unhappy with all of these people who are not committed the way that I am and who do not follow Him the way that I do, and He's not going to listen to them. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. It's a matter of trust, that they were righteous, and who as a result of thinking that they were righteous treated others who were less righteous with contempt. And then here's the story. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to do the very thing that we're talking about doing in this series. They go up to the temple to pray, and then Jesus describes these two men, and they are incredibly radically different. He says, one is a Pharisee, and the other is a tax collector. And one of the problems that we have when we come to a passage like this, believe it or not, is that we know something of the way that Jesus treats the Pharisees in the New Testament, and He doesn't treat them nicely, does He? He's constantly criticizing these guys, and so we assume, because He's Jesus, you know, that everyone else in His day must have felt the same way about these Pharisees that He did, and that is not true. I'm sure that the Pharisees had their critics, and I'm quite sure, since Jesus was one of them, that they deserved to be criticized. But generally speaking, the Pharisees were revered. They were looked upon as spiritually, wow. And that was the case because of their pious life, because they were so 
obedient to the rigorous demands of God's law. See, they were generally regarded, spiritually speaking, as the cream of the crop in the days of Christ. And tax collectors, on the other hand, were the bottom of the barrel. They were generally regarded as unrighteous. The Pharisees as righteous. So keep that in mind. Because Luke says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who, as a result of that, treated others who were ostensibly less righteous than they with contempt. And so the story is two men went up into the temple to pray, and in all likelihood, they go up either at 9 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the reason that is, is that was the time of prayer in Israel. Those were the times of the morning and afternoon sacrifice, and customarily that is when Israel would gather in the massive temple courts of the temple for their times of prayer during the course of the day. So the point is that this guy, these both of them, go up into the temple courts at a time when they're full. Everybody's there is the idea. They go up into the temple courts to do this very same thing that we're talking about in this series, which is to pray, and they go at a time when the temple courts are full... And again, they're very different, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And so then Jesus takes up the Pharisee first, and he begins to describe what he does. He says the Pharisee, and this is significant, standing by himself. The idea is that everybody's gathered into the temple courts for this time of prayer, and this Pharisee sort of segments himself off and intentionally separates himself from everybody else who has gathered there. And here's why, because at least in his mind, he's righteous, and he probably, no kidding, doesn't want anyone to touch him. So right there, you love the guy, don't you? This is not an uncommon thing Jesus is describing. Everybody in his day listening to this story is going, yeah, right on, I saw that this morning, you know. The Pharisee standing by himself, no doubt with his eyes lifted up to heaven and his hands raised up in the manner of prayer like he's going to catch the answer from the Lord. That was the customary stance prayed thus, and he prayed it out loud so at least everybody around him could hear it. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Now, he doesn't say, God, I thank you that you have made me to be different. God, I thank you that you've redeemed me and your son, that you've addressed the wickedness of my heart, that by your spirit you are forever changing me, and I can look back at the person I once was, and I can look now at the person I am, and I can see the difference, which, by the way, you ought to be able to see. So he's not thanking God for what God has done for him and the changes that God has made in his... Now, he's thanking himself, really. I thank you, God. Well, actually, Lord, I thank me. that I'm not like other men because by my own efforts, upon my own initiative, in my own resolve, in my own strength and steam, I live differently. I live at a different level. I bring a higher level of commitment to the rather rigorous demands of your law than, well, look around, Lord. And then he starts naming people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I mean, you got to wonder if he's not looking at people and going, oh, yeah. That reminds me, extortioners, you know, unjust, adulterers, and his eyes travel over to the eastern gate, and he sees another guy standing alone, but not because he's so righteous that he doesn't want anyone to touch him, but because he's so unrighteous that no one wants him to touch them, and he's not allowed to come any further into the temple courts than the eastern gate. 
because he's a tax collector. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And what is it that makes him different? Verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. Now, Jews in those days typically fasted once a year on the Day of Atonement, twice a week. Yikes. I give tithes of all that I get, meaning not just of his income, but literally of all that he gets. So he goes to Publix, he buys a loaf of bread. He doesn't know if Publix has tithed on this bread, and he is committed to have nothing untithed upon in his little world. So he tithes on even what he buys. Scrupulous. Amazing. The idea being that, surely, Lord, you must be really, really happy with me, and when I come into your presence, you must be, like, feeling privileged that I'm there and just ready and waiting to answer my prayer because look at how righteous I am as opposed to, well, you know, I mean, this tax collector. I'm righteous, he's not. And I want to pause and ask you if that's actually the case. And not just if it's true for this Pharisee, but if it's true for me and if it's true for you. Because I think that we're a lot less righteous than we think. And I'm quite sure that he is. If you'll forgive me, I want to think together with you about the second greatest commandment. You know what the two greatest commandments are, both in the Old and in the New Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, Jesus says. Love your what? Neighbor. How? As yourself. So what has this Pharisee just done to his neighbor? with the very prayer in which he claims to be righteous and a law keeper. He has violated the second greatest commandment of the law of God, which is not to embarrass this man. It is not to disdain this man. It is not to separate yourself from this man. It is not to put down this man and humiliate him. But it is to love him. See, the irony is that with the very prayer in which he claims to be righteous and congratulates himself for being such a lawkeeper, he proves that he's neither. So that's the Pharisee. But what about you and I? Because I think that's our tendency as well, and I think it sneaks up on us and we don't even realize it, and it just starts coming out in attitudes if we're not careful. You know, we commit ourselves to God and we begin to kind of scrupulously obey God's law, hopefully not to earn His favor because that just is never going to work. That's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel is all about. But we begin to lay down our sin and begin to live more and more into righteousness. That's this idea of sanctification where we're growing in this relationship with Christ and becoming more and more like Him Unfortunately, and I think that it's insidious over time as we begin to be more and more righteous, if you will, or at least live more and more so-called righteous lives, we begin to look around at other people who maybe just aren't as committed as we are and to disdain them and to hold them in contempt, particularly those people who, because perhaps they've ignored God's law or ignored God, have made a total mess of their lives and have found themselves in need. And there's something within us that wants to kind of self-righteously cross our arms and think to ourselves, well, serves you right. I mean, look, if you had obeyed God's law, you wouldn't be in this mess. And you know what the truth is? That's actually probably the case most often. God's law is not designed to make a mess of our lives. It's designed to keep it mess-free. It's not designed to enslave us. It's designed to free us. It's when we begin to transgress it that we find ourselves in all the potholes of life. But that doesn't make us better than these people. And it certainly doesn't make us righteous. 
If anything, it proves that we're not. It proves that we're lawbreakers as we violate the command of God to love them and in love to selflessly pour out our lives to help them out. Love gives, for God so loved that He gave. Love doesn't just talk. Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah about fasting and praying and and the needs of our fellow man because it is profound and it's challenging. I'll put it up on the screens, but Isaiah 58, verse 6, he says, Is this not the fast that I choose? And by that, he's not talking about a fast that he's chosen for himself. He's talking about a fast that he's chosen for me. He's talking about a fast that he's chosen for you. He's talking about his people, and he says, Is not this the fast that I choose for you as my people? And then before he tells us what the fast is, he tells us what the purpose of the fast is. And listen to what the purpose is. He says it is to loose the bonds of wickedness. It is to undo the straps of the yoke, probably meaning of injustice, to let the oppressed go free. You see, it's liberating and to break every yoke. God's saying, I have chosen a fast for you as my people, and it is a fast that is designed to liberate, to help, to break the yokes that people are being compressed and and oppressed beneath. And then you have to stop and go, okay, yeah, but what people? And the answer is... Everyone, all people, including the people that you and I in our misplaced self-righteousness tend to look down upon and thank God that we're not like and separate ourselves from because, good grief, this could be expensive. I mean, who knows what this might require if I get involved in this. Is not this the fast that I choose for you as my people in order to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. And then here it is. This is the fast. Are you ready? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? He's like, if you're going to stop eating, do it so that you can feed someone else. There is an intentional deprivation that is to occur within the lives of believers for the benefit of other people in need. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, meaning from someone whose circumstances may be radically different from yours, whose value system may be radically different from yours, whose ethics, whose lifestyle, whose whatever may be radically different from yours, whose commitment to the the wisdom of Scripture and to the law of God and to God Himself in all likelihood is radically different from yours, but whose essence of humanity is exactly the same. Is it not, he says, to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And then God goes on and says, then, meaning when you guys start doing that, shall your light break forth like the dawn. What light? The light of Jesus is going to break forth into a dark world full of people who need this kind of help. The light of Christ breaks forth there. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing, the healing of Christ, shall spread speedily. Your righteousness, what righteousness? His righteousness, as we'll see, 
shall go before you like the standard bearers of an army would march before the army. And the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You feel the safety in that? And then you shall call, meaning in prayer, and the Lord will answer, and you shall cry. And He will say, here I am. Why? Because you've earned it by doing all these great things? No, because you will have truly cried out the cry of a prayer of faith, a faith that is authenticated by the way that you live, by deeds of compassion. So Luke says that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, two very different men, went up into the temple at the time of prayer when everybody else was there as well to do the thing that we're talking about in this series and today, which is to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, Jesus says, standing by himself because he's so righteous he doesn't want anyone even to touch him. With his eyes lifted to heavens and his hands outstretched, prayed thus out loud, God, I thank you that I in my own strength and efforts, well, I'm just not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, then he looks over to the eastern gate, or even like this tax collector, even like him. Because by my own efforts, I scrupulously obey your law. In fact, Lord, just a couple of reminders. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get, so surely you're really happy with me, glad to see me, and ready to take notes as I bring to you my requests. And then Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing far off and everyone knows why, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And far from lifting up his hands, he it says, but beat his breast in a demonstration of humility and of shame and of repentance. This guy understands exactly who he really is. He suffers no delusions. And what does he say? It's a short prayer. It's absolutely wonderful. He just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He abandons the record of his life. And he throws himself upon the mercies of God. I got a call from my brother, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And um, the father of somebody that I went to high school with is dying of cancer. Uh, It's really not pretty. Um, Down in Miami. And so they kept saying, oh, can you come down and talk to him? Can you come down and talk to him? Can you come down and talk to him? I said, well, you know, where is he at spiritually? And they said, well, that's why they want you to come and talk to him. So they're calling in the professional. So that's always a no-pressure situation. And um, he's a really good guy. He's been good all his life. He was a good husband. He's raised good kids. His kids are great. Grandkids are awesome. But spiritually speaking, it's just never really happened for him. And I, so I drove down to Miami on a Saturday and uh, just went to his house. And, you know, he's in bed. And many of you have seen that scene, and it isn't really all that nice. Um, It's a terrible disease. So I show up and he doesn't even know I'm coming, so that was not good. Uh, He's surprised that I'm there. And I thought, oh, great, you know. And as soon as I walk in the room, I only met him once. I did his daughter's wedding, so that was like the only time that I'd ever even met him, and I wasn't even sure that he would remember that, but he did. 
And as soon as I walk in the room, he starts telling me why I really need to leave pretty soon, you know? <laughs> I'm really tired. I've been very busy. It's been on. And I said, look, his name is Bill. I said, all right, Bill, here's, here's my commitment to you. I'll be quick. But I need you to listen. I said, you, will you agree to that? He said, yes. I said, okay, I'll, I'll hang on to my end of the bargain. And I presented the gospel to him, which is what? It's be a good person and God will gladly welcome you in, isn't it? Now, it's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what you would expect. It's you can't be good enough and therefore you need Christ. So I got to the end of that presentation and I said to him, it was kind of funny, I said, Bill, did you know? Did you hear? First, he took me on this big tangent, and I thought, oh, good grief, he didn't hear anything I said. And finally, when he f- stopped talking, I said, did you hear what I said about the Jesus and the gospel? And, that's, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, would you like me to lead you in a prayer then where you can confess your sin to Christ and receive the gift of salvation? And he said, well, I think I had better, don't you? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, you know, all things considered, I think you ought to go all in. And... Uh, And so he did. It's a tax collector. I'm a tax collector. You're a tax collector. This Pharisee, and this is part of the delusion, is a tax collector. Jesus turns this whole thing on its head as he looks at the people in the crowd in his day and at those of us today for whom the shoe fits who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He looks at all of us who fit that description and he says, I tell you, and this was stunning to this crowd, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified, meaning declared to be righteous by God, the biggest sinner in town, rather than the other, the guy everyone reveres, the I fast twice a week guy. Hey, you know, I just bought a loaf of bread. Here's my tithe guy. And then he concludes it all with this punchline. And notice what he does with the language because he reverses the word order. That's very significant. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What is Jesus saying? He's saying things are not always the way that they appear. In fact, they're oftentimes exactly the opposite. And if you think that you're going to be a good person and live a good life and pay your taxes and be you know, honest and faithful to your wife and a decent father and your mother loves you and she thinks you're the greatest thing ever and that's going to be good enough for you to stroll into the presence of God, be it either at the end of your life or any time in between in prayer and command and therefore deserve His attention, it's going to be a very disappointing experience because none of us are good by God's standard of perfection. But if instead you'll be like this tax collector and you'll come humbly to God and abandon the unrighteous record of your own life and claim in your behalf the righteousness of Jesus who alone lived the perfect life and who, by the way, didn't seek to separate himself from us but came to us and sacrificially at his own deprivation gave us what we need. If you'll come to Christ and you'll approach God in his righteousness... Well, then, he'll declare you righteous, and you'll know his favor. It's the opposite of what you'd expect, isn't it? 
So the bottom line, I think, as we conclude this series is that when we come to God in prayer and also as we live for God throughout the course of every day, we need to abandon our record of righteousness. We need to come to Him with the gift of the righteousness of Jesus, the only truly righteous man. And what we ask of Him, be it forgiveness or anything else, we need to ask based on the record of Jesus in our behalf. And that is a really good record. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for our Lord and for our Savior, for the reminder from Your Word today that uh, He is the only truly righteous man. He is the only one who has ever lived the kind of life that You really require, the perfect life. We thank You that though He truly is perfect, He didn't seek to be separated from us and untouched by us but instead took upon Himself all of our defilements and all of our sin. And then in our place, on a cross, God, He offered His life as a sacrifice for us. We praise You for that. Father, we thank You that in Him we receive the benefits of the righteous life that He's lived in return for our sin, and that as we enter into Your presence, we are, as the New Testament tells us, able and indeed commanded to come boldly, confident not in ourselves, but in the One who lived and died and rose again for us. I pray that that would inspire our prayers as we come to You. We thank You, Lord, and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, today... We have the privilege of celebrating communion together. And as I say every time, this is a table for those who are forgiven. If you think about what this represents, you'll understand why that is. It invites all to come, but it invites all to come who come in faith. Jesus says to His disciples, hear that word, this is the bread of my body. It represents His body broken for us. This cup is the wine, He says, or in our case, the juice that represents His blood shed for our sins. It represents what He's done for us on the cross to take away our sin. And we remember that as His people as we come to it in faith. And if that describes you, someone who has come to Him as a sinner and confessed your sin and received that forgiveness, this table is for you. You don't have to be a member of this church to come and to partake, and I'd encourage you to do that. If that's not you then I would encourage you to consider that Savior and after the service to come forward and to talk to one of us pastors or somebody in our prayer team because we'd love to talk to you about that. Okay, so as our elders sort of take their station, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 23 where the Apostle Paul says this, he says, "'For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that He was betrayed took bread.'" And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray, and then whenever you're ready, just come forward, receive the elements. Go back to your seat, 
and take them at your leisure, okay? Father, we thank you for this sacrament, which we believe is more than just bread and juice, but it is representative of the body of our Savior and of his blood shed and broken for us. We believe, Lord, that by his Spirit, Jesus is present in this sacred thing called communion. And I pray, God, that we would meet with our Savior at this table today. We pray these things for your glory and your kingdom, for the benefit of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.